I have noticed that in this church, when, when God's word is read, that people often stand and, you know, they, this formal thing. Uh, but this morning, I wanted to take kind of a, a different, I want you guys to hear the, the word of God in a different way. It is that Jesus, as a teacher, would often go around and he would simply share stories with people. He'd just tell them simple stories that we often refer to as parables. Stories with some sort of meaning or lesson. And people didn't have, you know, Jesus didn't print out the words and said, all right, here we go. This is the story time, and, and this is what I'm going to say. Is he would often just speak to him. And so this morning, I want you to just hear this story that Jesus shares with us out of Luke 15. And practically, it's a really long passage. I didn't want you standing and thinking, man, is he going to stop reading anytime soon? But we're going to read this story in Luke 15. We're going to read uh, verses 1 through 3, and then we're going to jump down to verse 11. Hear these words. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to feed his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile... The older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. Something us Nazarenes wouldn't hear ever. (laughs) So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has, has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered his property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill a fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Father God, we thank you that you're a father who loves lost, who celebrates over us. And this morning, 
as we recall this good news that you love us. May you continue to shape us with that love. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Over the past several months, I have had the gift, yes, indeed, I said the gift, or month, not months, I've had the gift of stepping into many of your homes, meeting many of your families, and sharing many meals with people from Coast Community Church. Now, many of my friends back home, and even some of you, have speculated that the sheer number of meals that I was going to have with many of you would be exhausting and maybe somewhat like annoying eventually. Like, I would come into your homes and you'd be like, how many more do you have? And I'm like, oh, I have, every, I have a meal every day this week. And you're like, oh, doesn't that get old? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. You know, and so I started out and I was so hesitant, you know. And, and I thought that those feelings would surface as I kind of ran down the meal train gauntlet. And, and, but to my own surprise... I can sincerely stand before you this morning and report that I thoroughly enjoyed my mealtime meetings with all of you. Uh, it has made my transition to this place so much easier uh, than I had expected. See, when I first made the move to Santa Barbara, I had anticipated of, like all of the worst-case scenario feelings that I was going to have. Those feelings of like loneliness, where I know that I've come to a new place where I literally don't know anybody, and I literally have zero friends. Like, that's going to be a tough transition to try and meet new faces. But that just hasn't been the case. If I, and I've tried to explain to, to people uh, that the meal train has actually been a really cool thing. And I, and I think this is the reason why. is because there's something about sharing a meal together that just automatically brings you into relationship with one another, right? Because there's something, like, we don't have meals with strangers, we don't have meals with people that we don't like. Is that we only share meals with people that we're actually in close friendship or in community with. If you were to go to a restaurant downtown, which I know where downtown is now, finally. But if you were to go to a restaurant downtown and you were to show up and it was just you and a friend or you and your spouse or you and your significant other, right? And you, you showed up and you said table for two. You would often find if the restaurant's crowded, there's probably a booth that seats four people somewhere. And there's only two people that are currently occupying it. But the good host or hostess isn't going to kind of shuffle you over because there's an open seat there. Because we don't eat with people that we don't know. That would be so uncomfortable if they sat you at the booth, gave you menus while there's two strangers eating, right? That would be so weird. But we also, we, we don't share meals with people that we don't like. And we hear about this all the time during Thanksgiving, right? <laughs> right? Is we would soon rather avoid sharing a meal with people than go and be in relationship with those people. And so you hear people say things, if she's going to be there this year, heck no, I'm not going. Or if I have to sit across from him for the whole meal, I'm just going to get up and leave because I just can't be around him, right? Because there's something about sharing meals that is communal. There's something about sharing meals that is deeply relational, and we all know this. The pair of, oh, <laughs> meals are things that, uh, I already said that, and it is because of its meaning that a meal lies at the center of our story this morning as something both delightful and divisive. The parable of the prodigal son continues to be one of the most famous parables Jesus ever told. It is the third parable Jesus presents in Luke 15, and all the parables tell a similar story. There is something that was lost, 
there's something that is found, and then a bunch of people celebrate that that thing was found. The first parable tells the story of a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and he loses one. And he goes and he seeks after that sheep, finds the sheep, brings it back to town, and everyone's like, yeah, we got the sheep, cool. The second parable is a parable of this woman who has ten coins and she loses one coin. And she searches and scours her house looking for that coin and eventually she finds that one coin. And then she celebrates with all of her friends, ah, I found my coin. And the third parable tells a story of a lost son. It's the focus of our uh, of a sermon this morning. A son who is lost, who is found, and whose return home is in celebrated. The story begins by revealing the three main characters of the story. There was a man who had two sons. People have long debated about who is the central character in this story. And most people traditionally have identified the younger rebellious son as the main character in Jesus' parable. After all, he is the one, his actions are the one who drives the whole story, drives the father to compassion, drives the elder brother to be furious and angry. Others, on the other hand, have suggested it's the elder brother. If you read the context of the story, Jesus is speaking to religious leaders and their horrible, horrible attitudes towards people who are lost. And yet, I believe it is the father, the one who welcomes both sons to a meal that lies at the center of this story, a story that many people call the gospel within the gospels. Jesus tells the story in two parts, addressing two different types of conditions that keep these sons alienated from their father and from each other. And it is through a meal, as all meals do, that the father intends to have relationship with his sons and for his sons to have relationship with one another. The first part of the parable tells the tale of the younger son. His rebelliousness is historically infamous. At a young age, he demands. No, if you read, he doesn't ask, like, Father, can I have my, my inheritance? He demands, Father, give me my inheritance. Give me my share of the estate. And this isn't a request for partial control of the family business or, or more influence on family decisions. It is an order for possession of the assets that were going to be due him upon his father's death. In that single sentence, he makes known to his father's face, Dad, I wish you were dead because I want your money. So give it to me now because you're not dead. Such a demand in today's culture is shocking because of its crude candidness, but such a demand made in Jesus' culture should have been met with severe discipline. Think, um, for me, it was wooden paddle, but wooden paddle on steroids, right? Like, that's what the father's response should have been. Because the values of the community that the son was raised in have totally been violated. He totally uh, spoke out of turn or out of place, disrespecting his father. Yet what must have been an absolute shock to Jesus' audience, this father obeys his son's demands. He most likely gave his son between one-third and one-half of everything that he had possessed. And this isn't wealth that's stored somewhere in like a savings account that could be secretly withdrawn and then handed you know, to his younger son like, all right, disrespecting me, let's try and keep this under the table. No one will find out. You just leave, and we'll deal with the rumors later. It is that the father's wealth actually is, 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 it rests in things that everybody can see, that the whole community can see. 
It's in land. It's in buildings. It's in animals. It's in tools. And what we find is that the son, upon uh, acquiring possession of his father's assets, quickly liquidates everything that his father has given him. Having sold the land that's been in the family for generations and generations. The son trades away all of the buildings that were built literally by his father's own hands. And he begins exchanging the livestock and tools that his father's employees were using just weeks earlier. So that he can have cash and go enjoy a life out on his own. Out from under the thumb of his father. He ashamed his father. Broken all relationships with his family. And he thumbed his nose at the values of the community that he was raised in. This so-called son, we discover, sets out for a distant country. One of a different culture that most likely upholds different values. And Jesus reveals to us that in that place, this, this son, this young son, squanders his wealth in wild living. All that was given to him by his father has vanished. We're not told of the length of time it took him to get rid of all of his money. It could have been weeks. It could have been months. It could have been years. We aren't exactly told what he spent his money on. Later, his older brother will accuse him of spending it like a frat boy, right, in some distant country. But we don't know. All we know is that it was reckless. Uh, think college student with a credit card, right? The timing of the younger son's bankruptcy at this point of the story is quite unfortunate, to say the least. A famine soon thereafter comes over the land. A newly graduated college student entrenched in debt in an economy where he can't find a job. But like way, way, way worse than that. Because it's not just jobs that are scarce, it's literally food. There's a famine in the land. And this is hard for us to picture in a society where we import foods, fruits, veggies, right? Wheaties, cereals. We import all these foods from around the world into our local supermarkets, right? And so if we have a bad crop of oranges in California, we're just like, Florida, Mexico, shoot, send us your oranges. And we have oranges still. This isn't the way that it works during Jesus' time. If there's a bad crop or if there's a bad crops, there's no food, no harvest, no food. No food, no life. Literally, no life. To give you some perspective of the grim circumstances that famine poses, hear about these horrors presented by famines in the 20th century. In 1921, famine in Russia resulted in the deaths of 5 million people. In 1923, a famine in northern China resulted in 3 million deaths. In 1932 and 33, the Soviet famine claimed the lives of between 7 and 10 million people. And as recently as 1998, famine in Sudan captured the lives of 70,000 people. And those famines occurred during the 20th century. Modern technology. We have built safeguards. We have governments. We have nonprofit organizations to provide aid in these circumstances. But during Jesus' day, there are no safeguards to protect people from famine or the lack of food. Is that the only safeguard that was provided for any individual person during this time period from famine is one's family. It's the only safeguard provided. It's the collective work of a family 
and the planning of a family for the worst case scenario that can protect you from experiencing the full weightiness or consequences of famine. And family members were the only people who would have been even remotely willing to sacrifice some of their well-being for your own. At this point in the story, all of Jesus' listeners are probably thinking to themselves, now is the time that this younger son is going to return home. There's famine. He needs to be with his family. But he doesn't. Maybe the thought of facing public shame was overwhelming. Maybe admission of his own arrogance and stupidity in front of his whole family and the community would be humiliating. Or maybe the certainty of rejection upon his arrival was too absolute a reality to face. And so rather uh, than attempt to attach himself to his own family, we find this younger son attaching himself to a Gentile family. Not wanting to care for more bodies than they necessarily needed to during a, f a famine, the Gentile family offers the younger son a job that no self-respecting Jew would have taken. A job working with pigs. Because in Jewish tradition and culture, it, it, having touched or even remotely come close to pigs would make you unclean before the eyes of God. And so they said, sure, you need a job? Come work with the pigs. Thinking in their mind, there's no way he's going to take it, right? And he takes it. Jesus' audience must have been floored. From son to servant. From wealth to poverty. From life to near death. But eventually Jesus tells us that this wayward son comes to his senses finally. But he doesn't come to his senses because of his heart. Like, oh, I should probably go make up with my dad. Is that he's driven by his stomach. Because he's literally starving to death. And so he prepares this speech. He decides, I'm going to return home. So he prepares this speech. He's going to go back to his father. And these are the words that he's going to say. And it's one of those speeches. I don't know if you've ever done this. Where you said, I'm going to say this in this situation. Like, I'm going to go and I'm going to say this to that person. And so he probably rehearses it over and over and over and over and over. But then that moment comes and you totally blow it. It's like one of those, those moments for the prodigal son. And so he begins, he faces home, and he begins to walk home. And the picture that we can have of this prodigal, younger brother, younger son, is not one that is too flattering, to say the least. He's most likely wearing old rags, dirtied and scented by his work literally in a pigsty. He's barefoot, which was a sign of slavery or servitude. Can you imagine returning home with that reputation, looking like that, hoping that your father would say, it's okay, son? It would be an enormous understatement to say that what Jesus shares with his audience next uh, was unexpected and astonishing. I would use the correct adjectives to describe the shock that would have overwhelmed Jesus' audience, but my vocabulary literally it isn't big enough. The son returns home, walking down the long dirt road that leads to his father's house. People in the community are probably outside looking like, is that, is that? no way, shut up. That takes some cojones to come back here, like unreal. So everyone is probably fixated on his journey going home. And they're probably watching with anticipation 
That the same anticipation that we peer at bad car accidents with, that don't want to look but can't help but to look sort of feeling, because something horrible is about to happen. And so the father, gazing out in the distance from his home, fixes his eyes on a figure that looks like but surely cannot be his son. Stares a little longer. Upon fully recognizing his son at the distance, Jesus tells us that he becomes full of compassion. And this word, that compassion that Jesus uses here, isn't just like this feeling like, oh, my son, I really love him. It's this word that's supposed to conjure these images of something turning inside of the father. It's that like inner feeling that a parent has for their child that you just can try to explain, but you can't quite articulate accurately enough. And the father is so moved by his compassion that he hikes up his tunic and goes sprinting down the road to meet his son. Dignified men in this culture do not run. In fact, the opposite was true. Dignified, respected men in this culture were actually supposed to walk as slowly as possible so everybody would notice how important they were. But this father does not care in the moment. He goes sprinting after his son, meets him down the road, embraces and kisses him. Taken back in bewilderment, the young son begins his rehearsed speech. He gets nearly halfway through, and the father begins to speak, but he doesn't speak to his son. He speaks to his servants. Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The robe was intended to cover his filth that everyone could see. The ring and sandals signified his sonship. He was not nor ever would be a servant to his father. And the feast, the celebratory meal, demonstrated the restored and good relationship that they were soon to have again. In a moment, this once prodigal has become a son. This type of love and compassion is confusing to many of us, both within and outside of the church. How could a holy God love people like that, those people? How could God love those people? Recently, one of my good childhood friends, we're actually still good friends, uh, he grew up in the church, but hasn't really been in the church for a long time. Uh, and, And I'm trying to you know, I've been praying for him for years. But he wrote me this, this email a couple weeks ago, and I wanted to share part of it with you. <clears throat> My boss, mentor, and overall slave driver recently came to know the Lord. Amen. <laughs> he was the most logical, liberal, and thoroughly non-religious person in my inner circle. Seeing his change has been something of a revelation as God continues to love him despite himself. He isn't a different person. He's simply loved and forgiven for being who he is. A profound concept for me, for him, and perhaps the crux of what I cannot bear about my own beliefs. If I were to be Christian, shouldn't I change? Shouldn't I be less wicked? The myriad of theology and biblical teachings say overwhelmingly yes and no. Such a simple answer, and one that has been taught to me countless times throughout the years. Still, I do not fully grasp it. Thus, I find myself unacceptable. I am so thoroughly wicked 
and cannot begin to fathom an identity where I call myself redeemed. Maybe that's why I no longer consider myself a believer. Make that a practicing believer. What my friend has identified is that feeling that most of us, maybe not most of us, at least some of us, myself, have experienced, that sense of unworthiness before God's love. Like, how can I be loved and be a son, but I'm so messed up? And he can't quite get over the fact that the God that we worship does have that sort of compassion, even in the midst of our worst conditions. So pray for my friend. (laughs) The condition of this younger son is one many of us have experienced in the past. It is a life apart from God spent in the pursuit of our own desires and selfish ambitions. Those roads always begin with a promising and bright future, but always lead to an unfulfilling present. Although our experiences may not be as dramatic as that of this younger son, many of us know what it means to hit rock bottom before ever thinking about returning home. The guilt and shame that comes with such a condition for past mistakes and sin can hinder us from walking down the road that leads to our Heavenly Father. But if you ever have been in that condition and made the journey home, you know the embrace that met you upon your first encounter with this Father, with this holy God who never cleans his fish before he catches them. It's an embrace of our total person in the midst of our most desperate moment. It is the embrace of grace. And though many have often read and celebrated the fact that this younger son has to do nothing in order to earn his father's love, we are totally misguided to think that it costs nobody anything. Is the restoration of relationship uh, with his formerly rebellious son occurs over a meal, an extravagant meal, during a time of famine, the fattened calf would have fed between 75 and 100 people. And in the midst of this famine, not knowing if the famine's going to get worse or if it's going to get better, the father decides, I'm going to sacrifice this animal to celebrate the restoration of my son again. The father gives up perhaps the last security that the family had. But this father was willing to give anything for the restoration of rightful relationship to his son. So they must eat, and they do. The spotlight of the story quickly shifts, though, to the elder brother, which must have been a shock to Jesus' audience, and as we read the story, it should be a shock to us also. Jesus had previously told two other parables, right, in Luke 15, which I shared with you about. Something is lost, something is found, something is celebrated. Boom, end of story. But why does Jesus add the second act into this third parable? To fully understand what Jesus is doing here as he continues on, we need to to see who it is to whom Jesus is actually sharing this story with. The first two verses of Luke 15 uh, tell us that Jesus is dining with two different types of people. The first type are tax collectors and sinners. Despise people in society, especially in religious community. You know those people, right? Those people. I love that. Those people. 
the unbelievers. <laughs> we were talking about that in our class. They are, by all accounts, represented in this story by the prodigal son, right? Clearly, we can make that connection. The second type of people that Jesus is dining with, we discover, are Pharisees and teachers of the law, the religious elite. They know and obey God's laws obediently and with zeal, with passion. They are the pastors and theologians of their day, highly respected and holding unblemished reputations before everybody. Think Pastor James. <laughs> Except to your kids, I'm sure. But these religious teachers, these religious elite, they begin to grumble that Jesus is dining with these messed up people, with those people. And they are represented in the story as the elder brother. So Jesus goes on, the second act of his story. The elder brother returning from a long day's work hears the commotion of music and dancing going on in the house. These are not typical noises, apparently. And so he asks one of the other servants, what the heck is going on? It's famine time. Why are we celebrating? And so as, as, as a servant reveals to him that his younger brother has returned home, and so his father has killed a fattened calf, and everyone is celebrating, he becomes furious. You see, during a celebration like this, uh, uh, the eldest son of a family was supposed to go and wine and dine, well, not wine and dine for Nazarenes, but he was supposed to go and kind of work the room, so to speak. He was supposed to make everybody feel like they're having a good time during the party. That was his duty. That was his obligation as the eldest son. But rather than fulfill his duties during this party, the elder son becomes angry and stays outside the house, refusing to join the party that is being thrown, a sign of both disrespect towards family and the guests. Upon hearing this, the father makes his way outside of his house for the second time, for his second son, pleading with the elder son to come join the celebration. It is a good thing. Not knowing that he's about to get an earful from his, his angry elder son. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf. I'm not going in. This is the moment in which we all think, if I spoke like that to my dad, I don't even want to know what would happen to me. And besides the obvious lack of respect, Notice four things in this statement of the elder son. First, look at how he addresses his father and how it's different from the address of the younger son. The younger son returns home and says, Father, I have sinned against heaven. But he addresses him as father. Sign of respect. Elder son, not so much. Look what you did. Second, he doesn't long to feast with his father. Who does he long to feast with? It's friends, right? I don't want to be in a relationship with you, Dad. I want to be in a relationship with these cool people over here. Third, he describes his younger brother as this son of yours, distancing himself emphatically from any association with those people. And finally, listen to how he describes the relationship he has with his father. 
All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. This son perceives his relationship with his father like a relationship between master and a slave. There's no joy in it. There's no love. There's no closeness, no uniqueness between his relationship with the father and everybody else's relationship with him. Enduring his son's disgraceful behavior, this gracious father continues to plead with him. Join the celebration. Come join the meal. Come eat with me and your brother. Then the story ends. Jesus offers us no resolution or conclusion. We never find out what the older brother does. It's like a bad movie. Like, what am I supposed to do? You walk out. What the heck am I supposed to think about the ending? But the accusations that Jesus makes about the elder brother and thus directly at the religious teachers standing within proximity of him are very clear. Your religion has not resulted in a relationship with the father. You are as distant from your father as your younger brother was and all of these dirty sinners that you're sitting around. You find no joy in your religion, just a set of principles that make you feel like a slave. The practice of your religion makes you feel like the Father owes you something, and you stand in judgment of everyone, not even remotely demonstrating the compassion your Father has. It is as clear an indictment on bad religion as you will find in any of Jesus' teachings. And it embodies most of the world's greatest critiques of the Christian church today. Judgmental, hypocritical, smug, slaves to rules, no compassion, lack of joy. What the world, and sometimes we as Christians, miss is that the beauty of Christianity is not found in the religious rules and rites that can lead to smug Pharisees and judgmental religious zealots. The beauty of Christianity is the good news delivered to us in a simple meal. And that news is this. God the Father wants to be in right relationship with you. And out of his compassion, invited you to dine with him over a meal that costs you nothing but costs him everything. But the good news goes on. God the Father also wants you to have good relationships with one another and invites you to dine with each other over a meal that costs none of you anything but costs him everything. The gospel brings us into right relationship with God and each other. When James asked me to preach, he said, just have some sort of foundational sermon to how you view ministry. And I was like, well, I got to preach the gospel then. I got I to bring the G word up, right? And to me, there's no other foundational text that I could have immediately jumped to other than the prodigal son. You know, this way that the father reunites with his lost son in relationship and the way that these two brothers are supposed to join. And to get, like, there's, there's no clearer story that I read in the gospels about the gospel than Luke 15. And today, we are also going to celebrate the Lord's Supper or communion. Communion with God, community, relationship with God, right? And so, perfect text uh, as a reminder of our right standing with God and with each other. Regardless of our condition, be it sinful rebellion 
or bad religion or a combination of both. But I need to point out one last thing about this morning's passage. In Luke 15, we read three parables. One of the lost sheep, one of a lost coin, and one of a lost son. But there's one remarkable difference between all three of these. In the first two, we find a shepherd who seeks after the sheep. In the second one, we find a woman who seeks after a coin. Who seeks after the lost son? Who seeks after and finds the lost son? No one. No one seeks after and finds the lost son. He finds his own way home. The absence of a search for the lost son is often an unspoken detail of the parable. Jesus' final indictment of bad religion of the Pharisees is that the distance from the Father has made them ignorant of the Father's compassion of the lost. It should have been the elder son who goes and seeks after his younger brother. It should have been the elder son who left home in pursuit of the lost. One of the great tragedies, I think, in the church today in America, at least the evangelical church that I have experienced, is our reflections of God's compassion for us only ever make us feel better about ourselves and our relationship, our personal relationship with God. But our reflections on the gospel should always serve as a reminder that our God, our compassionate Heavenly Father, yearns for the lost to return to Him, to return to the meal of celebration, and thus should move us to go seek after the lost as a shepherd and as a woman. So as we dine together this morning, may you be reminded of your right standing with God and each other. But may you also be reminded of our Father's compassion for those who are missing from the meal this morning. And be reminded that this meal compels us to go seek after the lost. Father God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you provide a way for us to commune with you. We thank you for the way you have given us the ability to commune rightly with one another. As we, as a church, reflect on this good news, may we never be satisfied with what it does for us as individuals, but always reminded that this meal compels us to be a church on mission. Remind us of, of your grace to us. Shape it, or use it to shape us and mold us into the people, the right religious people who have compassion for the world and the lost. It's in Jesus' name I pray.